Well, it's uh, great to have some of you join us today, and uh, it's nice to be sort of on our very first step to uh, opening up in greater ways, and hopefully in a few weeks. I know they're doing another announcement at June 15th, which hopefully will uh, lax maybe some of the rules a little bit more. I know for some of you, having to wear a mask the whole time is going to be very awkward and difficult, but if you serve in an industry, I mean, most people who wear them for eight hours or 10-hour shifts are used to them. I know some of us aren't, and so it makes it more difficult, but it's uh, great that we can at least be gathered at least uh, somewhat. So we'll keep you up to date on what is happening in that uh, realm. Uh, with that, uh, we are going to jump into a new message series today, and uh, this series is called a uh, just a, a gem-filled story, and it's based on Acts chapter 8, because there's this really cool story in Acts chapter 8, that has a lot of gems in it. And it's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And we'll kind of spread this over a few weeks because there's just a lot of uh, beautiful things in, in this story. And so we're going to talk today about Philip's crazy call. We're going to talk a little bit about hearing God. We're going to talk a little bit about persecution. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, religious control as we open up this story and it begins in Acts chapter 8. It says, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. All the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And so right in the opening chapter of uh, or the opening verse of chapter 8, we see that there's this, we see a great wave of persecution. We see Jesus followers having to be scattered away from their hometown. And of course, if you're not familiar with the story, you might go like, what in the world just happened? I mean, why did people have to flee? What is going on? And who is this Saul guy who agreed with the killing of the Stephen? Well, to understand the story, we need to go back to Acts chapter 6. And we meet a fellow by the name of Stephen. He is uh, an early church leader uh, in the church of Jerusalem, and he is out uh, just loving people on the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, God is doing miracles through him. People are being healed. They're being blessed. He's encouraging folks. It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, that Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. I mean, he's, he's walking in the ministry of Jesus and and, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But what happens, as we saw what happened often through Jesus' ministry and throughout the book of Acts, is that uh, sort of negative religious folks don't like this. They didn't like Jesus' ministry, and they didn't like the ministry of the early church because, you know, Jesus was loving people and doing miracles, and the folks in the early church were loving people and doing miracles. And religious people like control. And they could not control Jesus, and they were trying to control the folks in the early church, uh, and they couldn't. It, it kind of made them angry. So we see what happens in Acts chapter 6. Some religious folks come up, and they begin to question Stephen. Stephen, you know, is your doctor in line? Or, you know, are you following the right rules? Because they didn't think he was. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, was filled with wisdom. And it says that none of them, that is these negative religious folks, could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. 
And you think that maybe these religious folks, because Stephen had the wisdom of God in their life, would have said, you know, oh, maybe I got to look at my own heart. You know, maybe, uh, maybe I should just surrender and say, God, I don't really like this guy, but I'm just, you know, seems like he's doing your kind of work. He's loving people. So we'll just leave it and leave it at that. But, you know, if you know anything about strict religious people, they can't do that. Because there's one thing that strict religious people or negative religious people like, and that is control. And we see here, it says, they didn't just kind of, you know, pray about this and, you know, God, you know, speak to me about this. It says, so they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we have heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. And here we see what, what, what can, it can happen to us. Uh, but but it, it definitely happens to people who are stuck in negative religion, and that is they, they often worship control more than they actually worship God. And we know that from this text because what did they do? I mean, they, they couldn't outwit Stephen, so what did they do? They actually break a Ten Commandment. You know the Ten Commandments, which is that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? They actually purposely set this up, find some people to purposely lie against Stephen in order to trap him because... There's one thing that negative religious people can't lay down, and that is control. And it's not they're, they're, they're surrendering to God as, you know, I worship God primarily, but they actually worship rules and control primarily. And therefore, if someone is messing with their rules and their ability to control, they will do anything, including lying. And sadly, this would leave, lead to the death of Stephen. And so uh, they drag Stephen into the, this religious court, and they begin to question him. And Stephen begins to basically uh, tell them about Jesus. He uses their own scriptures, the Old Testament, and runs through the Old Testament in kind of a, this long sermon in Acts chapter 7. And, and, and at the end, I mean, he kind of rebukes the religious leaders a little bit because, I mean, it was pretty clear they weren't acting in, in, in line with the love of God. Uh, but this is, again, how they respond. Again, it shows that they have no humility, that these folks had no you know, they didn't, didn't worship God primarily. Again, they worshiped their rules and control, and they couldn't control Stephen. So it actually says this. I mean, just picture this. They put their hands over their ears and began shouting. And they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. You can see the heart of Jesus all over this guy, Stephen, not the religious leaders, because they were about control. But the heart of Jesus all over him, that, that when these enemies, I mean, he knew he was set up. I mean, imagine just one day you're out there loving people and, and you know God is using you because you're, just, you're healing people and all of a sudden, you know, these strict religious people come along and, and they start questioning you and you get dragged into some religious court and they lie about you and, 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 and you end up like, you know you're going to die because you're about to be stoned. And I mean, I'd be ticked. I'd be like, God, get those guys. I mean, you know, fire from heaven or something. But I mean, Stephen was a much better man than I am. I mean, he had the, the love of Jesus all over him. And just as Jesus hung on the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they, they don't know what they're doing, we see a very similar line from Stephen where he says, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. 
And with that, he, he dies. And we have a note here that uh, says, his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we notice that name at the very beginning of Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that this Saul person is related to this the persecution that spreads. And, 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 and Saul was a very strict Pharisee, very much caught up in religion and rules and trying to control people. And perhaps people laid their coats at his feet because it seemed like he was somewhat in charge. And, and he would lead a wave of persecution against the church. Or later he said that he would arrest women and men and, and would not spare them and persecuted them even to their death. And we know this Saul uh, because later he actually runs into Jesus and his life is changed. And uh, he actually moves from worshiping rules and control to worshiping Jesus. And he is completely freed. And he becomes, moves from the persecutor to the one who is persecuted. And eventually, the religious system would put him to death, uh, even though he was there at one time. And in fact, later after his conversion, uh, Paul would say in Acts chapter 5, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law, to rules, to control, because he knew that what that was like, and he knows that that system, it, it just kills. It pulls life out of folks, uh, where the life and the Holy Spirit and, and the, the, the presence of Jesus brings absolute freedom. Now we also see, so this wave of persecution hits. And what happened is when Stephen was killed, it just it inflamed all the religious folks. And they were like, you know, we need to stamp out this Jesus-following movement. And so they began to persecute the church harshly. And, and Saul, who became Paul, was involved with that, persecuting the church. And so, I mean, imagine if, if persecution broke out and we had to flee our homes. That's what happened. Uh, all the Christians had to flee Jerusalem. And so they spread it all over Judea and Samaria and to, to these various places. And, and this brings up the idea of persecution because we see Jesus was persecuted. We see that folks in the early church were persecuted. There are a lot of Christians today who are, are persecuted by, you know, uh, radical Islam or radical uh, Hinduism. Uh, but we don't get off because Christians ha at times have been the, the horrible, awful persecutors themselves. I mean, we have done that in church history a lot. It's an awful thing. Uh, but it's interesting that often in the West here, we get persecution very, very, very wrong. <laughs> I mean, we tend to think, you know, persecution here is when Starbucks comes out with the wrong kind of cup or Nike comes out with the wrong kind of shoe or Disney comes out with the wrong kind of movie or, you know, the you know, halftime Super Bowl show, you know, we're being persecuted by the secular society. But do you know that the persecution primarily found in the scriptures had nothing to do with the secular society, had everything to do with the religious society. I mean, who persecuted Jesus? It was the religious folks. Who persecuted the folks in the book of Acts? <laughs> it was the religious folks. And so when we look at a text like John chapter 15, where Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as its own if uh, the world would love you as one of its own, if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember that I told you a slave is not greater than the master? Since they persecuted me, they naturally will persecute you. Now, who persecuted Jesus? 
as a controlling, rule-following religious folks. <laughs> and so in John's gospel, when we read this, I mean, we think the secular world, but, but he's actually talking about the religious crowd. And I don't know about you, but I mean, the primary persecution that I felt in this world has been from religious folks. And, and a lot of Christians actually say that, that, that it's often within our own groups that we persecute each other and certainly in places in the world where, again, radical Islam or radical Hinduism, I mean, it's religious persecution. And again, Christians have religiously persecuted others. And, and so sometimes we, we, we read the Bible from our Western comfort rather than from what the scriptures are actually talking about. That the persecution found in Jesus' life, the book of Acts, again, was from the religious folks. And so this, this persecution hits. And so back to chapter 8, it says, the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. And, and then we run into this guy, Philip. Philip, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, was a fellow church leader along with Stephen. Uh, they ministered together. They were on the same team. And, uh, you know, Philip by this time would have known that his good friend, uh, Stephen, was killed by the religious leaders. And so he and probably his family had to run. And where do they go to? You know, we see the heart of Jesus in Stephen where he's saying, you know, don't count this sin against them. And we see the same heart in Philip because where does he run to? He doesn't run to like another Jewish community or run to a place that's kind of safe and cozy and, and simple. He runs to Samaria. And if you know anything about the Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't get along at all. I mean, he went into enemy territory, if you will. I mean, the Jews did not associate with Samaritans, but Jesus did. Jesus went there. Jesus loved them. And so Philip, when he's like, I got to leave Jerusalem because I mean, personally, where am I going to go? He says, I'm going to go where Jesus went. I'm going to go to the least of these. I'm going to go into Samaria. And so he goes into Samaria and he begins to tell them there about the Messiah. And crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. God is at work in the Samaritans. And, and I mean, Philip, I mean, imagine how horrible that'd be, having to leave your home behind, and, and you take your family to this, this enemy territory, and, and you're like, I don't know what's going to do, but I guess I'll start telling people about Jesus, and literally, a revival starts. And people begin to be healed, and people are eager to hear Jesus. And it says crowds begin to show up. I mean, uh, imagine if you were persecuted and you had to move to, to Weimar or something like that, and, and, uh, and you, you know, all of a sudden you have a, a revival going on in your yard, and you have to get big tent meetings, and all these people are being healed. And I mean, there's this, this crazy revival going on in Samaria because of Philip. And then in the story, like the weirdest thing happens. Uh, he's in the middle of this revival. <laughs> and then later it says this, then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. Uh, he's in the middle of a revival and this angel of the Lord, which is probably just a vision. The angel of the Lord can be, you know, appearance of Jesus. It can be a vision of Jesus. It can be an angel. It's used in a lot of different ways in the scripture. But this angel shows up in the middle of this revival and says, Philip, I want you to leave the revival. It's not like the angel said, you know, I want you to go next door or to the next town. It's literally like, would you travel for days on end 
all the way to the middle of nowhere to Gaza, which was sort of the last watering hole before the, the road to Egypt. And I went to go to this wilderness road, and he doesn't even say why. Then imagine the picture. You're like the head of a revival. <laughs> you know, you're healing people, and it's just never been heard of, because I was never heard of in Samaria before. I mean, imagine your little home, your little hideout in Weimar, that you have thousands of people showing up, and, and there's revival meetings. People are being healed, and, and then all of a sudden, as you're praying one day, God speaks to you and says, and you hear this funny voice say, hey, would you hop in your car and drive to the Mexican border? You know, there's a little dirt road there, and that's all you get. I don't know about you, but I would be like, that's probably not God. You know, you know, God's into the revival business, and he wants me to be in charge, and look at, all, look at how famous I am right now, and the news is coming and talk to me, and this is all I ever wanted. And You'd be like, maybe that's a pizza or something. But Philip, I mean, he does the craziest thing. It says in verse 27 that he got up and he goes. He does this, this long, you know, four-day walking journey all the way down to the middle of nowhere, to this, this middle road where nobody even is. He leaves, and, and again, and it shows the heart of these early church folks. It shows the heart of Stephen, who can look at his enemies and say, Lord, don't count this sin against him. It shows the heart in Philip, where he goes to Samaria, and it shows this, this heart of humility, that he's willing to leave the action and go to the middle of nowhere because God is calling him. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, we you know, we, we paint God out in our own image and we always think that God is, he's only interested in the big things. He's only interested in the big revivals and all the great healings. And he's not interested in the lowly folks, but, but he is. Because what happens is God calls Philip all that way and he's going to run into one of the most unlikely individuals in the whole world. But that's for the next message. But I want to talk a little bit about hearing God, because Philip hears God. And this is one thing we see all throughout the book of Acts, is, is folks hearing God. And it seems to be just a normal, natural thing for the folks in the other church to be hearing God and, and, and for them to be, to be directed. Now, there are people, Christians, in this world of Christianity, because Christianity is, is super diverse. And as diverse as you can think it is, it's a million times more diverse than you even think it is. But there are folks in Christianity who say that God doesn't speak today. Uh, that if you hear God speaking, it's not God, it's just your own self. Uh, that God does not speak today. There are some folks who say that. They're called cessationists. That is a view in Christianity. Uh, a lot of other Christians read the Bible and say, well, it seems God is speaking to folks in the Bible, so it seems that God would speak to folks today. But it seems even if you read the Scriptures, the Scriptures are quite clear that we are to be able to hear God, and it should be a normal thing. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, when you come together, and this is sort of the picture of what happened in the early church, it says each one has a hymn, a lesson, and a revelation. So they come together, maybe one person would lead the song, the next person would lead the song, and then some person would have a thought for the day, and then, you know, someone would say, hey, and I heard God speak to me. A revelation is something downloaded from God. It just seemed this was a regular part of how church went. And Ephesians 1 Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That, that Paul is praying for the rest of the Jesus followers that they would get more revelation from God and wisdom from God. In, in Ephesians 6, 9, Paul says, pray for me, that whenever I speak, words may, me, uh, may be given me 
uh, in response to a, a revelation. So Paul just, again, understand that he receives revelation and that, that God's going to give him words. In Galatians 2, it says, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, just like Philip went somewhere in response to a revelation. Paul is saying that, that it happens, and, and it can happen to us too, that, that we can get revelations from God about what's going on. Even the Bible itself, and this is what's funny about folks who say God doesn't speak today because you know, God only speaks through the Bible, but the Bible itself says that God speaks in the Bible, so it's kind of backwards in my opinion. But uh, in times, For instance, 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. It's clearly saying, reflect on what I'm saying, and God is going to speak to you. That it just seems to be a normal, natural part of our world. Or Matthew 10, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I mean, you can't get any more clear than that. The Bible says that there are times when God will actually speak through you. That this is, is a normal, natural part of Christianity. I mean, it's kind of weird if you think, because we know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are around us. The Father and Son and Holy Spirit are in us. I mean, just think about having God in you, yet you, you, you never hear Him. I mean, John 14 says that, that we have become God's home, that he has moved in us. I mean, God lives in your home. You certainly should hopefully hear from him. I mean, imagine if I said, you know, I live with my wife, Marie, but I never hear from her. From her. We're in the same home, but we never talk. I mean, I never hear. You'd be like, that's kind of weird. And, and yet some people say, you know, I have God living in me, but well, he never talks to me. I never hear him. It just doesn't even make sense, the idea. And plus, this, this idea that God only speaks through the Bible I mean, again, that is a very modern, Western kind of view, because for most of church history, most Christians didn't have a Bible. I mean, it was just us in this last privileged 100, 200, 300 years that we've actually had a Bible. I mean, for the first 1,500 years, no Christian had a Bible, especially the first couple hundred years of the church. The Bible isn't even fully put together or compiled by that time. And it's a very modern notion to say God only speaks to the Bible because we have a Bible, but... For most of church history, Christians didn't have a Bible. They actually had to, to lean on the idea that God actually spoke to, to them. And so I just want to give a, a few hearing God tips because, you know, this is a struggle for a lot of people, and sometimes it's even a struggle for me, sometimes hearing God. And, and there are a few things that I find helpful, and maybe you'll find them helpful. Uh, the first one is that God's voice often sounds a bit like our own voice. And uh, some people get wrong right off the bat because I think God should talk to me like I'm talking to you. You know, like, again, the, the home idea, you know, Marie lives in my home and we talk with each other, and then so if God lives in my home, I should hear God the same way Marie talks to me, but, but it's different. I mean, I see Marie, I don't see God. You know, he, he, he lives in us by, by his spirit. God is spirit. And so this notion of him talking to me like I talk to you, just put that away, <laughs> It's his spirit speaking to our spirit. So it's not an ear thing. It's a, it's a spirit thing. That God speaks into our spirit. And so he speaks into our spirit. And then what happens is it's got to go up to our head. And we kind of interpret it with our head. And so a lot of times God vo God's voice sounds a lot like our own voice or our own thinking. And it's very biblical. Matthew 16. So uh, Jesus asks the disciples, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, 
you are the Messiah, the Son of the, of the living God. And probably Simon Peter is like, yes, you know, I'm so smart. <laughs> uh, Jesus says to him, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. I mean, obviously, from this text, Peter thought he thought of it. It was his own thought. It was his own idea. But very clearly, Jesus says, no, 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 no. This was a revelation from God. See, a lot of times you are receiving revelations from God, but you actually think it's your own thought because God speaks into our spirit and then that kind of works up into our mind and then we got to think about it and so it kind of comes out like in our own words. And this is exactly the way you see the Bible. The Bible says it's inspired by God, but Paul certainly does not sound like Peter and Peter certainly doesn't sound like Matthew and Matthew certainly doesn't sound like John because God's revelation is going through their own minds and it kind of sounds like them. And God may say the same thing to you and to you and to you, and it might come out a little bit different because it kind of goes into our spirit and outer mind, and we might think it's our own thought, but sometimes it's God's thought. In fact, God is speaking to, to all different folks. In fact, in John 11, it says, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest of that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he says. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole uh, nation perish. And he, it says this, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. I mean, it's the high priest who was against Jesus. He hated Jesus. And yet God was speaking to him. You see, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, God is speaking. God is placing revelation in you. And it's in your spirit, and again, that works up into our mind, and, and, then, and then it comes out. And in fact, uh, we see in Romans 8, it says this, the spirit himself bears witness to our spirit. And so when you're listening to God, don't listen here, you listen here. You listen with your spirit, your little words or phrases or thoughts that kind of drop into your spirit, but to kind of, to think about them, they got to go up into our brain. But the Bible also says, we have the mind of Christ. So sometimes your thoughts are God's thoughts. And, uh, and sometimes it's hard to even discern the difference, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because he's living in you and he's speaking into your spirit. I mean, it's much more integrated than we think. And the more you understand that, the easier it will be for you to receive and recognize the voice of God because you're not like this. It's not a separate voice. It's often just something that kind of boils up within. Secondly, uh, God's voice always lines up with James 3.17. It says this, the wisdom that comes from heaven, so the voice of God that enters into our spirit, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And so uh, we see here <clears throat> that the wisdom from heaven is always, it always is it's pure, it's good, it's kind, uh, and it's not going to shame you. It's amazing how many people get mixed up in this, that when they hear like a, a shaming voice or a condemning voice, uh, they think it's God. In the Bible, three times says that whoever is in Christ will never be put to shame. If you ever hear a shaming voice, it's not God. Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you ever hear a condemning voice, you, you know that's not God. His voice is gentle, and it's actually submissive because God doesn't control us. He, he just loves us and moves us forward, and so we use that to, to filter out uh, what God is saying. And then God's voice always lines up with the one new covenant command, 
And that's to love people. God's voice will always be in line with loving others. And, and so with Philip, I want you to leave this revival and go down to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but it lined up with loving the strangest man we'll ever meet. And next time we're going to talk about this Ethiopian eunuch who loved God, but was completely rejected by the people of God. And God says, I love this man. He was in the middle of Newar who is being rejected by folks. And it's just a beautiful reminder that if you feel rejected by folks, if you feel isolated, if you feel that God doesn't care about you, I mean, God is willing to send someone in the middle of a revival to lowly people so that they might receive the love of God. Uh, Father, we thank you now that you speak. And God, I just pray that you continue to help us to recognize you as you drop words and phrases and thoughts into our spirit. God, we love to hear your voice. We love for you to lead us. And God, we, um, we just thank you that you love the one. You love me, and you love each and every person watching this. You love each and every person in this room passionately. In Jesus' name, amen.